Thank you, David. David just read about handling Scripture accurately. We are Signal Mountain Bible Church. And we were founded not just as a Bible-believing church, but as a Bible-teaching church. That's been in part of our DNA from the very beginning. Uh, but since this is the last sermon in the series of Church 101, um, I'm going to actually talk about the preaching and teaching of God's Word, but I'm going to also, since this is my last uh, sanctioned opportunity to give some personal memories, I'm going to do that. Okay, and, and, and some things I haven't mentioned before is the elders wanted, to, wanted us to share some personal things from over the decades. Um, one of the things that, that Betsy and I remember very vividly is uh, driving down where we were living in Dayton at the time, down the two-lane road, because Coolidge, Park, Coolidge Parkway didn't exist, uh, down the two-lane road from Dayton uh, to Chattanooga, and uh, our, our daughter in, in our kerosene-smelling van, I know, and our, our daughter Beth had it in her head that she was a singer. And she would sing and sing and sing and just belt it out. And that child could not carry a tune. And, and Betsy and I just, you know, at some point, honey, we're going to need to tell her. We, yeah, but not this year. So we, you know, but we, we, what we did was we said, you can sing until we get to the middle telephone pole in Sail Creek. Then, and, uh, and that worked for a few years. And then she became a music teacher. I, I don't understand how old. <laughs> and she's great, a wonderful soloist. <laughs> Glad we never got, got around to telling her. Um, <clears throat> after that, we went to, uh, after church, our standard place was Taco Bell. 33 cent tacos and tostadas feed my family we got water under five bucks <laughs> life was good uh, it was great i remember uh, getting there and folding uh, to the church and folding up chairs uh, uh putting down the folding chairs and put folding them back up every sunday after the service not knowing where those chairs were going to be which storefront they were going to be in uh in that those early uh the, the earliest year and uh, uh, I think we told you in an earlier time about uh, meeting in the boiler room one Sunday. Uh, that was quite interesting. Early on, uh, one of our earliest worship leaders didn't quite grasp the preaching part. And uh, so some Sundays I would get the pulpit at 10 minutes till. And uh, we stopped at, we were over at noon on those days. And uh, so... Um, uh, where today it's 12, now it's 12.15. If you didn't know that, we've not been going over every Sunday. We go from 11 to 12.15 by design. So on those Sundays when that happened, I would adjust mentally as I was walking up. Okay, uh, I've got 10 minutes. <laughs> and uh, uh, I would somehow try to have, I would put, I would preach about one-third of what I had. I guess the good news was I was done for the next week. The point I'm making, though, is if you've ever been involved in a church plant, you don't get everything right at the beginning. There's a lot of messiness, and, and you learn, and you grow, and you learn again from the mistakes, hopefully. Uh, here's something I haven't mentioned. I, 
Betsy and I vacillated back and forth for years about my staying in the academic world versus uh, and leaving the church or uh, leaving the academy and becoming a full-time pastor. And uh, uh, my opportunities in the academic world were increasing. And as the years passed, the church became more and more family. And, and, and the needs were greater as the church grew. So I had to make a decision. And I had two pictures in my office uh, in, in, at the college. I had two pictures in my office on the board. One was of baptizing Morgan Farquhar, and the other was baptizing Michael DeCosimo. Those were the two pictures on the wall in my office that I looked at for years. And uh, those two pictures sort of became the symbol of the family connection. And that family connection nudged our decision to leave the academic life in 2001. So that's how that happened. It was a very slow, gradual process, but it was the picture of the church family represented by those two baptisms. Uh, here's my favorite memory of Sigma Mountain Bible Church. We had uh, the, the, the diversity in our church body was with us from the very beginning. Not racial diversity, you don't have much good chance of that on Signal Mountain. That's just the way that is. But social diversity, absolutely. I remember um, one family from California, Mike and Bobby McCormick, and their son, Bo. And uh, the growth group that I led met in their home. And uh, uh, when they moved away, uh, every, every Sunday night when I was there at their home, they had coffee, and I liked diner mugs, and there was this one particular diner mug. It was actually part of a four-mug set, and Mike said, uh, here, I want you, you, you always go for this mug. I want you to have this mug, and uh, I said, Mike, I can't tell you. That's a set. I, you know, I love the mug. I always use it, but, and he said, no, um, I want you to pray for me whenever you pick that up. So for 25 years, every time I pick this up, I pray for Mike and Bobby and Bo. Lord, bless them. Give them a good day. Hope they're having growth in your word. So, um, but here's the memory thing with Mike. He was kind of a rough guy. Um, drove a truck. The edges weren't smooth on Mike. Um, and uh, I asked Mike one day how they connected with the church, and he said, you know, when we moved on Signal Mountain, we never quite fit in with the culture of the mountain. <laughs> we never felt that we fit in here. But he said there were a few people who treated us kindly. He said that one day, the first Sunday that we walked into your church, we looked around, and there were those people. We were home. And uh, I think that's the best memory I've got right there. I hope that would be true today as well. Mike was a believer. Bobby got saved, and I baptized her. Don't have a picture of that. Wish I did. So here we are, Sigma Mountain Bible Church. Our motto is to know Christ and to make him known. 
God wants us not just to be saved, but to be sanctified, to grow. And he's given us those three resources for spiritual growth. You may have heard them before. Say them with me. The Word of God over us, the Spirit of God within us, the body of Christ around us. Let's do that one more time. The Word of God over us, the Spirit of God within us, the body of Christ around us. Two of those three are perfect. One is not. One is growing, the body of Christ around us. But together, they're like a three-legged stool. If you remove one leg, you've got no stability. You crash. You can't leave your Bible on the shelf and expect to stay where you are spiritually because our, we have this spiritual default, and it's not to stay neutral or remain where we were. I mean, read Romans 7. Our default is like being on a down escalator. We may think we're facing up. We may be looking up, but that's just not the direction we're heading. So, you can't say, I'm going to ignore the Word of God. You can't say, the body of Christ, the church, is unimportant to me. You can't claim to love Jesus, but not love what Jesus loves and gave himself for her. So all three are essential for spiritual growth. Word of God over us, Spirit of God within us, body of Christ around us. So how does our corporate worship, bringing those two, two of those three together and infiltrated by the third, the body of Christ, the Word of God, and the Spirit of God working through that, how do those things contribute to our growth? Well, in several ways, uh, but specifically br bringing together the body and the Word John 17, 17. It's, it's a fascinating passage. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus speaks in prayer to the Father. And he says, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. This, I mean, you think about it. God the Son is speaking to God the Father about God speaking both revelators. We see the pattern unfold in the book of Acts where the early church would gather together and hear God's word taught. The term that we use to describe what we aim for as we communicate God's word to the church gathered is the term expository preaching. That's our goal. Thy word is truth, not my feelings about your word, not the norms of culture or truth, not the beliefs arising from a postmodern culture about truth or truth. That is, the, you know, the, as one person said, truth by bandwagon. God's word is truth. We want to teach that truth accurately. So the early church would gather regularly to be taught the word of God. And we gather. We sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And we listen to the exposition of God's Word. But there's preaching and there's preaching. Uh, seminary programs offer all kinds of um, courses on how to preach, uh, which I ignored beyond the minimum because I was never going to be a pastor. I got real tickled about an article that I saw uh, recently on four sermon types to avoid, which I've adapted a bit. And here are the four sermon types to avoid. First of all, there's the 
the I want to tell you what's on my heart sermon, which where the text becomes a pretext for laundering the pastor's personal concerns. And the article calls it passion without precision. At least it can be that. Very close to that is the second type. It's the I'm in more of a hurry to apply this text than to explain it, so please don't notice that I'm not showing you where I get this from, but trust me, sermon. But the point of the sermon is not for me to share what I'm learning or feeling, although that may happen. The point is to teach what the text says. The third one was the I've been reading John Frame's systematic theology sermon. So instead of asking, what is God saying in this text, the question becomes, where does this passage fit into my theology? Now, theological sermons are really good at times, but sometimes the text gets shoehorned out of shape to make it fit. And then finally, there was the, I have a seminary education and I'm determined to let you know that sermon. It's not that funny. In the extreme form of this one, uh, the sermon is a lecture on Greek or Hebrew grammar, uh, textual variants, archaeology, and so forth. Uh, What happens is that everything that happens in the pastor's study gets imported into the pulpit. Everything. Um, Instead of being limited to what's helpful to explain the text. And I struggle with this one. And here's why I struggle with it. Because instead of, uh, uh, because I have the temptation to assume that the things that are interesting to me are interesting to everybody, and they're not. And uh, the things that are exciting to me are exciting to everybody, but they're not. Also, I'm I'm kind of a natural skeptic. Um, And I assume that other people think of the same objections that I think of, and I want to address them preemptively. (laughs) So uh, there's a balance there. I'm kind of wired for apologetics, but that's not necessarily preaching the word. So I have to find that balance. I've looked at a lot of books. I'm not sure what my preaching style is. Lewis is great. But me, I'm not so sure about, I'm not even sure if I have a preaching style. I, I don't know if my preaching style is to teach or my teaching style is pastoral. But here's my goal, and here's Lewis's goal, and that is that however we communicate it, here it is, at the end of the sermon, that you have a clearer understanding of the text that's in front of you. To create in your minds the same understanding of the text that the original readers had. Removing any distorting filters of, of culture or language or practice. To, one person said to put on display what is there. That's it. To put on display what is there so that you can see Scripture in high def. You can see it with clarity, less fuzzy, more clear. But at the same time, at the same time, Lewis and I want to get out of the way of the text and the explanation enough for God's Spirit to speak to God's people through God's Word so that we can grow to be more like Christ. So there's that getting out of the way part 
that is important. And the umbrella term that describes the kind of preaching we aim for is expository preaching. Now, what does that term mean? We could define it by its opposite. That is, by the negation. When the preacher is done and the text of Scripture is not explained, that was not expository preaching. But most people think of expository preaching as going through a book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That's expository preaching, right? Well, except when it's not. I've heard sermons moving through a book that don't always have that much to do with slogging through the text that's in front of them. Um, how does a sermon focus on a passage but not be expository? It can be done. I had a professor who described the prodigal preacher as the man who read his text and then journeyed off into a far country and there wasted his breath in riotous preaching. So here's my attempt at a definition. Expository preaching is the bridge between the explanation of Scripture in its context and its application to today's context. I put that in your notes for you so you don't have to write it down. It's there. Expository preaching is the bridge between the explanation of Scripture in its context, that's the exposition part, and the application to today's context, that's the preaching part. And if you leave here with a better understanding of the passage that we've studied and what it means in your life, then Lewis and I have been at least somewhat faithful in fulfilling the mandate of 2 Timothy 2.15, accurately handling the word of truth. And while we, we try to, let me this clear too, while we try to apply Scripture, we are very, very aware of something. This major truth, and here it is, the application of Scripture that brings change is the Spirit's work, not ours. We are to hear under that truth. Remember, that's what the word obey means, to hear under that truth because it's the word of God over us. We hear under that truth and then we absorb what it means to be more like Jesus day by day by day. So the application of Scripture is the Spirit's work. Um, let me add this, though. You know, even the inspiration of Scripture is the Spirit's work. In fact, I think it's all the Spirit's work, isn't it? Here's the undergirding assumption. Isaiah 55 says this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Hebrews 4 puts it this way. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So the focus of these verses is on the intrinsic authority and power of the Word of God. That's why our priority is to open the Scripture to lay out what is there. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, We thank God that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, 
you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, listen, which performs its work in you who believe. The intrinsic authority and power of the word of God. Romans 15, 4 says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And what happens is sometimes you're going to walk in here and the topic of the sermon is not really going to have anything to do with what is eating away at your soul, but you sit here under the ministry of the the balm of the word of God and the coherence and beauty of God's truth and you see him more clearly through his word and you're comforted you're calmed you're encouraged you've received the encouragement of the scriptures it has intrinsic authority and power and our role as preachers is to lay out what's there and get out of the way I want you to turn with me to uh, what how we see that unfold very briefly in the book of 2 Timothy. Go ahead and turn there, 2 Timothy. Lewis and I were um, at a group meeting of uh, Signal Mountain pastors, and, and by the way, not all the pastors were there. Okay, so what I'm about to say, not all were there. But the topic of sermons came up. Remember this? Uh, and they were asking each other how long their sermons were. And so they kind of went around the table, how long your sermons are. And Lewis and I were sitting next to them, and we were hearing, okay, well, our, mine's 15 minutes, mine's 12 minutes, mine's 10 to 12 minutes. And then they got to us. We said, 40 minutes, maybe 45. And uh, one immediately responded, my people wouldn't stand for that. And I said, no, we, we let them sit down. <laughs> no, I, I did not. I did not. I did not. <laughs> did not. I can be snarky, but not that snarky. <laughs> but expository sermon takes time to, to develop the text. And uh, we plan the service from 11 to 12.15, which allows for 40 to 45 minutes to receive the Word of God. We know that people can absorb only 30 minutes of a sermon. But we just don't know which 30 minutes that is, so, <laughs> so we do 40, 45. Okay, are you in 2 Timothy? All right, look very, very briefly at chapter 4. I'm going to give a little bit of an overview of what's going on here. You're familiar with this book, I think, but look at chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, I am already poured out, being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I'm going to stop reading right there. The point is that this book is Paul's last will and testament. He's about to die. And when someone's about to die and they know they're about to die, what they're about to say is going to be of significance, especially when he is giving guidance to his son in the faith. So he's talking to Timothy and he speaks to him actually more about the Word of God in 2 Timothy than he does in all of his other letters combined. Exhorting Timothy to handle God's Word accurately because Timothy has this stewardship that's going forward. 
to, it, it, he's been entrusted with handling accurately God's truth, to read it, to use it, to interpret it, to teach it, to apply it well. In fact, look back at chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul says, I'm not, he says, um, for this reason I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. Look down at verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. You, however, continue in the things you've learned to become convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And he's talking about the Old Testament there. From childhood. The, the word brephos is used. It's used of, 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 a, of a baby in the womb. The idea is from the earliest memory that Timothy has. That memory includes being taught and read the word of God. And he learned the sacred writings. And the word for writings is the word for letters. I think Timothy learned to read from the scriptures. The sacred letters, which are able to give you I'm sorry, which able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Why? Because all Scripture is God-breathed out, inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's the only how-to manual I know of for righteousness. Here's the purpose. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And here's the next statement i solemnly charge you in the presence of god and of christ jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke exhort with great patience and instruction and he has more to say about that and it's interesting to me that he closes out this letter with a very uh with, with a, a number of personal things that he wants Timothy to do in verse 9 of chapter 4 chapter 4 verse 9 he says make every effort to come to me soon and then look at down at verse four, uh, 13 when you come bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus it's cold in that dungeon and the books especially the parchments and must understand that the parchments were the scrolls on which the Old Testament was written but Paul you're about to die yes I'm about to die bring me the word Study to show yourself approved, as the King James renders, chapter 2, verse 15. So as, as we look at this, you see how Paul is reminding those who are carrying that torch forward about the primacy of God's word. So let's back up to chapter 2 a little bit and look at a couple of verses there. And you read the whole chapter yourself to see how these unfold in context. Because in chapter 2, seven analogies are laid out illustrating different aspects of faithful service. Uh, the analogy of a child, a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, a skilled craftsman, a vessel to, to drink from, and a bond slave. Our focus is on the fifth one, the skilled craftsman. Uh, look at, look at uh, verse 8. Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. 
So remember Christ Jesus. And he has a wonderful doctrinal statement about Jesus and his faithfulness to us in verses 11 to 13. If we died, we'll live with him. If we endure, we'll reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us the way, the way that Judas did. If we're faithless, the way Peter was, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And then he says again, remember verse 8, remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead. Verse 14, remind them of these things. And solemnly charge them in the presence of God, not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers. And he's about to describe some false teachers who do that. But here's Timothy's mandate in verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So the point is, instead of wrangling about words, be a craftsman in handling the word. We'll come back to that in just a, a moment. Look at verse 16. But avoid worldly and empty, empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene in verse 17. So the cr skilled craftsman is to avoid false teaching. If, we, if you don't handle the word well, if you don't handle false teaching well, what will be the result? The growth of ungodliness because doctrine and Christian living should be inseparable. Paul uses a very graphic word to describe the result when this goes wrong. It's the word gangrene. And if you were to ask Paul, uh, Paul, would you lead us on a Mediterranean tour of, of your missionary journeys? He would tell you, well, actually, it would be kind of a prison tour. And Luke was with him, the physician, for most of those prison visits, prison stays. And, and Luke saw, and Paul saw, a lot of gangrene. The Greek medical term, gangrena, that's what it's from. It's a Greek word. It describes the process of putrefaction from within once it gets started. And, and here's the analogy. False teaching is like gangrene. Don't let it get started and spread to others. And he gives two visible cases that are known in Ephesus where Timothy is. Look at verse 17, uh, last part. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection had already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. Here's how that worked out with this example of not handling the word of truth carefully. Uh, we don't know, Hymenaeus is mentioned in 1 Timothy. Uh, Philodus is mentioned only here in the New Testament. All we know about these guys is that they were saying that the resurrection of God's people had already happened. And and probably they were teaching, therefore, that it was a spiritual, not a literal thing, which is a huge deviation from the gospel. It is definitely false teaching. First, it denied Jesus' physical resurrection and his second coming because, that was, because this hope, and, and that meant that the hope of meeting their loved ones was destroyed. And secondly, and, and by the way, you know, remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15? If that's true, if Jesus did not really rise from the dead, then our faith is rather pathetic. We're spinning our wheels doing, doing things when we could be doing, uh, spending our time in, in other ways. Secondly, it meant that if the resurrection has already happened, then we are reigning with Christ right now. So if you suffer, something's wrong with you. Where's your reigning hat? 
relinquish crown. No real Christian should suffer. No wonder they upset the faith of many. That false teaching was spiritual gangrene, and Paul called it out. So he concludes this by saying in verse 19, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. These are two foundational sayings from the early church that are, uh, are, are, that are given here. The first one, the Lord knows those who are his, God knows who belongs to him. That's a deeply comforting truth. I will never leave you nor forsake you. If, if you think you have, haven't been resurrected, no, that's, that's, they're getting that wrong. Secondly, let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness, which includes false teaching. This flows from belonging to the Lord. We're to live like that. Now, in the rest of the chapter, God, Paul gives two more illustrations. One is of a vessel. That is, and if you were to, if you were to pick a vessel, a drinking vessel to drink from, would you pick one that is, if one of them is jewel encrusted and lovely and gorgeous and the craftsmanship is amazing and one is just plain? But the one that's jewel encrusted, that has all those gifts attached to it, is filthy and mold is growing in and out of it. But the one that's plain is clean. Which one would you pick? Well, that's the one that God picks. That's who God uses. So that's the, the next illustration, being a vessel. And the last illustration that he gives at the end of the chapter is being a bond slave. And what he, what he means when he uses that illustration is the Lord's bond servant must not be quarrelsome. You give, you, when you give your rights, when you're a bond slave, you yield your rights to your master, and your master is your Lord. So you give up the right to get upset with people over little things. So those are seven illustrations in this chapter of what it means to serve the Lord faithfully. Now, in verse 15, in verse 15, remember, Timothy is serving the Lord at the church at Ephesus. Paul taught at Ephesus for three years. And he wrote, when he, uh, he spoke to the church at Ephesus, and he told them, uh, when he met with the elders of Ephesus at, uh, in Acts chapter 20, he told them, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He taught them everything in the scripture. And that's where Timothy is now teaching the word. So when Paul met to say those goodbyes, he reminded them, I've taught you the whole counsel of God. If he didn't teach the whole truth of God, he would be distorting Scripture. He, he would be editing Scripture. In other words, he'd be editing God. And then he would be sinning against them. We are in danger of editing God when we make Scripture say what it doesn't say to fit our agenda or not say what it clearly does say to fit our comfort. Let me repeat that. We're in danger of editing God when we try to make Scripture say what it doesn't say to fit our agenda or not say what it clearly does say to fit our comfort. That's why we don't shy away from teaching about things like the exclusiveness of salvation through Christ, violating the Bible's sexual standards, 
uh, when, when saying that marriage is not between just a man and a woman. It is. One man, one woman. And anything outside that covenant of marriage is morally wrong. And on and on and on. Countercultural truths emerging from the Bible on almost every page. But we can't edit God's word by ignoring those things as though we were going to protect God from people thinking that God is mean or rude. No, God is truth. Yea, has God said. If I don't teach you faithfully what Scripture says, I'm sinning against you and sinning against God. Now, what does Paul tell Timothy, as well as all Christians? Handle Scripture accurately. And there are endless examples of handling Scripture poorly. Mostly, the most common thing that happens when we handle Scripture poorly is when we read it out of context. I, read, I picked out several verses already in this sermon, and I just read that one verse. And you need to be like the Bereans and go back and see if I read them in context to see whether or not these things are so. So I think that probably the, the, the worst example of picking Scripture out of context, you remember how somebody would say, Lord, here's what I'm going to do today. And that was their devotion. Where whatever verse, you, you have said to me, O Lord God, buy for yourself the field with money. Lord, today, I'm going to call a realtor. Now, uh, probably the, the, that's, that's called lucky dipping. Some of, some of them are pretty funny. Uh, someone, uh, as the story goes, someone opened his Bible and put his finger down. And the text said, Judas went out and hanged himself. And he got a little concerned. Okay, that's not right. Went to another passage, put his finger down, and said, go thou and do likewise. And he, no, no, he's getting nervous, beginning to sweat, and went to another page, put his finger down, and he landed on Acts twenty-two sixteen. Why tarriest thou? I was once in a Christian uh, bookstore, and I saw a pair of friendship lockets. And uh, they were a quotation from Genesis, two, two lockets together, a quotation from Genesis thirty-one forty-nine. May the Lord watch between you and me when we're absent from one another. It was kind of a one step up from a Hallmark friendship card where you give one to a friend who is moving away. May the Lord watch between you and me when we're absent from one another. But that's not exactly what that verse was about. Laban said to Jacob, I don't trust you and you don't trust me, but God sees us both. So the Lord will watch between you and me when we're apart from one another. And here's the very next verse. If you mistreat my daughters or take wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, God is witness between you and me. So... (laughs) The term handle accurately is literally cutting straight, cutting straight. It was used of plowing. It was used of laying out a road, you know, plowing a row, laying out a a, a street. And get this, it was also used of Paul's own craft, which was tent making, cutting the panels straight to make sure that they aligned with each other, that they matched, and then trimming them so that they fit perfectly 
This takes time. It takes time to handle accurately the word of truth. And it takes work on the pastor's part. This is the main thing that Lewis and I do. But what Paul said was, make, uh, I'm sorry, what Paul said in verse 15 is be diligent. Let me show you the same term, be diligent, translated in chapter 4 slightly differently. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. Make every effort to come to me soon. Look at verse 21. Make every effort to come before winter. Same term. Make every effort to handle accurately the word of truth. And that assumes that Timothy would be inconvenienced <laughs> by the process of digging into the Word of God to handle it accurately. So, do you think we can handle a few minutes of having our schedules readjusted to get into God's Word on a daily basis? Make every effort. My father-in-law, my father-in-law and I were very, very close. But he, he, had, a, he had a different opinion about a pastor's work. Basically, you work one hour a week. He knew that wasn't quite true, but he wasn't quite sure it wasn't quite true at times. And uh, he used to tease me about studying too much for sermons. I love this man. I mean, we, we were, he, was been in, he was in my court, in my corner the whole time. We were always close. But he used to tease me about studying too much for uh, sermons, and I needed to just rely on the Spirit more. And then once he came to a sermon that I did where I was called on the night before to do it and I didn't have much time to prepare and after the sermon he walked up and said didn't study enough did you <laughs> our primary responsibility is to handle accurately the word of truth so when we stand up here and say it stands written you see it clearly um, and, and your responsibility is to be a steward of God's word as well. Be diligent. Make every effort, even when you may feel like it's inconvenient. You know, I just don't have enough hours in the day to spend time with the Lord. Try that with your spouse. Sweetheart, I can, I can give you five minutes today. Doesn't work too well for developing a deep and flourishing relationship, does it? The verb assumes, make every effort, that you'll be inconvenienced. It's been well said that sin will keep you from the Bible and the Bible will keep you from sin. I believe that staying in God's Word will change you and will drive out sin in your life and mine. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, what did the Word incarnate do? Did he generate new scripture? No, he said, it is written. I mean, everything Jesus spoke was red letters right? Instead, he goes back to what is written, what you and I have access to. It is written. And so, as Paul told Timothy, we preach the word because the word of God has a sanctifying effect. Sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. But Gary, don't you need to preach against this and preach against that? There's old, uh, I think I've told you this story before. I've been here for a number of years. 
uh, the pastor under whom I grew up, did I tell you about this? Was a was a circuit riding preacher in Texas. Rode a horse from town to town to town and preached different sermons on Sunday. And uh, when he first got out of seminary, he was a firebrand. He was preaching against this sin and against that sin. That was basically what he was doing, was preaching against this or that sin. That's, you know, and he, and he had a loud voice. He was good at it. And uh, he was visiting an old farmer one day, and, his pre- and the farmer uh, said, Preacher, uh, look at that mange section on your horse. And he looked at it, and he pointed out, Yeah, I've been wondering how to get rid of that. And the old farmer said, You know, you can get rid of that mange in two different ways. First, you could take something and try to beat it off of him. Or second, you can feed him real well and let him shed it. The Spirit of God applies the Word of God to the people of God to do the work of God for the glory of God. Lewis and I have no spiritual authority, but the Spirit of God does what we cannot do. In fact, we stand together with you underneath the same authority of the Word of God. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Father, we thank you for your word.